Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode, well, this episode is a little bit different from what we trailed at the end of last week's show. Instead of the brilliant Finn Taylor, whose episode, by the way, is wonderful and ready to roll next week, we decided after Johnny Walker's moving account of his wife Tiggy's breast cancer and some of the comments and feedback we had in response to that, that we would love to do an episode to mark Breast Cancer Awareness Month um, as it's coming to a close at the end of October when this goes out. Breast cancer is the most common form of cancer and the main cause of death in women aged 35 to 49 years. One in seven women will develop the disease in their lifetime. One in seven. And everybody listening to this will have a link to breast cancer, directly or indirectly. Breast cancer is more common in women over the age of 50, with 80% of cases falling into this age category. And breast cancer isn't all about women. Around one man a day is diagnosed with breast cancer, with 390 men diagnosed with invasive breast cancer last year. Almost a thousand people a month lose their lives to breast cancer. It's not where you come from, it's where you're going, Laura. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. How are you, Callie? That's today's guest, Laura Smith. So those are some pretty sobering facts. We normally have fun and silly trivia, but now we've heard those and they are important to hear. I think you'll agree. Um, but if you listen to the stories from people like Tiggy and Laura in today's episode and the millions of other women and indeed men with a connection to breast cancer all around the world, then you'll know that breast cancer also brings with it healing, humour and hope. And that's what today's show is all about. We've got these really ridiculously high ceilings on like, you know, a really small little place. Laura Smith has been described as a naturally funny woman by Joe Brand and anointed the marvellous Laura Smith by Jonathan Ross. She's a native East Londoner and a mother of three, and her comedy is autobiographical and observational as she explores her place in the world. Laura was a secondary school English teacher until at the age of 37 she started stand-up, and that was just three years ago in 2019. After winning the Funny Women Awards in her first year, she was very quickly signed by a top agent. She became a sought-after act at the biggest clubs around the country, and she's fast amassing an impressive list of TV credits, including being featured in the upcoming season of Live at the Apollo. She's described as a blunt-speaking East Londoner with a real force of nature personality. And her comedy involves, and I quote, brutally honest ribbing of her kids, her friends and herself, largely intolerant of niceties and affections. Laura and I talked about love, self-worth, diagnosis, treatment, recovery, saying yes, saying no, belonging, relationships, self-care, survival, and crying. 
yeah, I think I should warn you, me and Laura, we're quite big on the old crying. Uh, there's talk of crying and there is plenty of actual crying, but not in a way that's not fun to listen to, guys, but strap in. I started by asking Laura about how it was for her in the early days of her breast cancer diagnosis. I just so value me being able to be me that it's that I do the stupid thing of doing too much and actually setting myself back. Do you know what I mean? And it's it, 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 Ori Styler, who I love so much. It was at one point of my recovery, I, I just knew I, I didn't have it in me to go and do this gig. And I just knew and it's over in Wembley and it's a big gig. And I just thought, I hate letting people down. I hate welching. I hate not being able to do it. And I messaged him to say I couldn't do it. And I was lying in bed just feeling like a piece of shit, basically, an unworthy piece of shit. And Ori Styler got this, the whole of Wembley Box Park, where he was delivering this gig, to say, I think it's so like, we love you, Laura, or get well soon, or like the whole crowd did. And it was just such a wave of love. And I thought, I got a wave of love from doing nothing. And it meant the world to me that I was still coming to cry, but I, am as well. I was worthy of that love Mate. and feedback from doing nothing. And it meant, it was like a lesson to me, Callie, that I didn't have to go and fucking nearly kill myself schlepping over to Wembley to do a 20 minute set to be worthy of that. So a good, kind person like Ori got that love for me, despite me feeling like, and I just think that's why, I mean, we are so ridiculous. I don't think we've known each other that long, but we're like, love you, love you, love Because we know how important it is to express love and to receive love because we live in this quite a hostile world, you know, the world's hostile, you know, to succeed is a hostile thing to, you know what I mean? And, and, and actually we know the importance of making sure each other is filled up. Dis you know, you're worthy of all that love and accolade and, you know, and weirdly stand up is one of those things where you're not a stand, if you ain't gig for a couple of weeks, you're like, yeah, just as I suspected. I'm a shit stand-up. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you have to be in front of, it was the weirdest thing that you have to do it to know you're doing it. You're only as good as your last gig. You're only, and then you lose, even if your last gig was good, you could sit there ruminate, even if you've done live at the fucking Apollo. Hey, Bay, come on, go us, go <laughs> you know us. I mean? Yeah, but, anyone listening who doesn't know, me and Laura just did live, <laughs> not together, but the same series. Yeah, so we do this and, 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 to, to know that you are all of those things if you are lying, if you are gathering bed sores. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it's, it's and, and you know, I had a thing, um, well, if we're sort of in it now. Do you want to do an introduction? We're in it. We're in it. We're I in do it. the we're intro in afterwards. We're banging it. <laughs> we're in it. But um, I had this thing where I, because I, uh, we've, I've, I've been, un I've had breast cancer. So I had a lot of chemo and then, and then I was going to have three weeks of radiotherapy. And my attitude was always, the doctors are doing the cancer. I'm doing life. I'm just doing life. As long as I keep doing life, as long as I keep, I'm, and then, um, you know, but really I was acting like I'm going to die. So I'm going to keep going, keep going, keep going. And then I got this really great acting role, which would have made delaying my radiotherapy. And I was, e -e -e. and but actually deep down, what it was, was, I was going to have to go every single day for three weeks. And it was like I was just going to have to sit with my illness. I was going to have to sit and go, oh, 
I'm not doing life. I'm doing healing. I'm doing stopping. I'm doing burning my flipping insides out. I'm doing... And uh, my brother said this thing, he, it was a funny thing to me. He says, I know your attitude has been go for life, go for life. With Sometimes you just got to sit with it. You've got to go, all right, what, what's going on? What am I dealing with here? What am I sick? What? Oh, I, I, I'll look at you then. I'll look at you. Because I. it was in a weird way, what I'd realised is though that was my positive, oh, this is me being positive and this is how I'm getting through it. It weren't that. I was thinking, I'm going to die. So I better do loads and loads of life. I better do loads and loads of life because I'm going to die. And then when I got this big role, I thought, brilliant, because this is more life. And I can say I was in an ITV cop drama and, and I did more life. And then it was like I was faced with like, well, are you running and running and trying to fill up in life? Or are you going to stop and say, no, you're healing, you're healing. And I went, oh, fuck, I've got to stop and do healing. <laughs> I've got to do it ugly. And I've got to stop and I've got to clear my diary. And I thought, fine. But it was good. I had to stop and go, right, you're not well. This is serious. You you want to do you want to live? Okay. You really want to okay. Do you know what I mean? And 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 that that was a that was a big stop for me. So and then I tried to carry on. And then what happens after radio therapy is it gets worse after. So you're going, oh, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Like you're really burnt. And then you're pulling gigs again, which is counterintuitive to really brilliant successful comedians like you and me but the you know what i mean and and, and everyone went all right cool yeah of course i understand do you know what i mean and and not feeling the urge to over explain to everyone but i'm allowed to pull a gig i'm allowed to pull a gig if i don't feel like it actually that's what i'm allowed to do not i don't have to <laughs> i don't have to be at such an extreme do you know what i mean and and often people and you know and even pulling out the cop drama i got a big bunch of flowers from the production team and I got like one of the, the main star <laughs> slid into my DMs with a really nice message. And again, I learned this lesson. Oh, you're enough when you say no. You're you're enough when you say no. And I thought, bloody hell. Is it? Because, I mean, it's amazing enough, your story that you, you got for anyone listening who doesn't know you. And I, I suspect the whole bloody world's going to know you within about nine months. It's going to be like a fame pregnancy and you're going to be birthed fully famous instead of semi-famous. So it's been um, it's been quick, but two things make it amazing. One that you started stand up just before the lockdown. So if you look at your age as a comedian, you kind of have to discount about eighteen months of it as well. So you're really new, two years into yeah. <laughs> but you know, like you've been doing it all your life. Um, I think who was it who said? Yeah, Bruce Desso said she's been doing comedy for a few months. Sounds as if she's been doing it all her life. And when I first saw you, we were at the Rat Pack in Camden. Um, at, upstairs at the Camden Head, Camden Comedy Club, and I and you came in. I didn't know who you were. I actually thought you were a mate of Sarah's. I didn't know you were an act. And then we were chatting, and then you went on, and I was like, "Fuck," um, which I think is the response everyone has. And for anyone listening, "Fuck" in a good way. And it's like, where have you been? Like, I, did, you know, so so. But to have done all of that, and then to have also had breast cancer in that time. So this tiny window where you were either locked down or coping with breast yeah. cancer, you haven't had much of just an easy, normal run, have you? No, no. We we um I, I I my analogy and I shared this with Ori as well who I've already talked about is have you ever seen Usain Bolt training in Jamaica? He he runs the hundred meters with huge weights behind him. Like I mean maybe all hundred meter runners do. It, but I mean like they're terrifying sized weights. And I think I kept thinking of that analogy. This is just all my weights on. Once these weights come off, I'm just going to keep keep going. You know, run that hundred meters. So. Yeah, it, well, um, and the timing of it, and you talk about when we met at the Rat Pack, and I think this is sort of sealed the deal other than, you know, seeing each other stand up and adoring it, is um, 
because Sarah, who who runs that night, was asking how am I doing, and I hadn't I hadn't even had my diagnosis, but I kind of knew, and and you just took it upon yourself to check in with me. And then there was just this weird, this obvious, what would they say? You don't meet friends, you recognise them. <laughs> there was a lovely shorthand between us and this amazing out, outpouring of care and love that never felt intrusive because you, 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 you've you lived life and you know what's what. And, and you were very, I've just written a bit of stand up about it for something, which is that anyone that's been through it doesn't go, oh, it's all right because, or, or doesn't do quick fixes. They go, yes, it's horrible. <laughs> and that's what, and that's what you need and of course you feel like this and that's normal because you you're trying to hashtag be positive and hashtag kick cancer's ass but it's so powerful for someone to just go yeah i'm sick exactly with you how you it. should be feeling yeah it's the idea of um when i i did a thing called the huffman process which isn't a cult if you don't know what it is but i did um, one of the things they do in it i think i've talked about it on the podcast before but one of the things that happens quite early on and this does make it sound weird, so bear with. But the person, it's not therapy, it's like a sort of development kind of thing, but you're there for eight days without a phone and without any contact with anyone, which is also weird, like for us as parents. Yeah, and huge, yeah. like even just not being able to, I mean, of course, you could be in touch with your kids. If there's an emergency, there's a way to be in touch. Yeah. But you're not otherwise. So it's a really weird thing. I was 50 when I did it. And um, and and you each have a sort of each group of it's a small thing, and and you each have a sort of person who's your person leading it. You know, leads a small group. And and at one point, they quite early on, this person looks at you with with everyone else there, but he they just stand in front of you and they say, "I see you and I love you." And yeah. I know that sounds a really weird thing in the sober light of day, away from that environment. Yeah, the power of a relative stranger saying that in a safe way. And yeah. meaning it in that moment, I cried for about seven hours. Like I just yeah. couldn't stop crying because people don't see you and love you. And the reason a lot of us do stand up is so that we can emulate that I've been seen and I've been yeah. loved. But a lot of us, the last thing we're letting anyone do behind the mask is see us because we think they can't love us. Yeah. Yeah. And to be seen is really difficult. I had some... Um, very very proper acting coaching the other day and I realised how much I was avoiding eye contact because this woman was wide open and, it, and and a lot of our session was psychology it was about how am I, to be present to be wide open to be receptive and then we made eye contact and you know in, in your head you think well I want to make a joke or snog you if I'm making eye contact because that's what it is isn't it yeah. you go, oh, mate, I'm really connecting here and and I think that when that's not sexual or funny it's being seen and it's being real so yeah as much as we I mean it's going into sort of Hannah Gadsby and that territory of as much as we are stand-ups to be seen and, and and love me we can talk about things because we when we can go that far with attention because we know what you know tr tragedy plus time is comedy we go right and here we're going to break it and we're trained to break it because I think we are good good comedians true community like are people that see the world show it and uh, as a kindness make a joke about it so we can face truth with the immediate release of laughter but when you're actually earnest jesus christ to say you know like to to be seen when the vast majority of life being socialized is about sh making structures to avoid being seen handbags there you go that's what i'm worth that that handbag and glasses sunglasses that i'm, I'm worth this you know what i mean i'm um my style all the things that that, that um we then then what happens is we have all these things because because they're hardwired from 
how to fit in as a kid because we're pack animals. If we're not accepted by the group, then we die. That's 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 primal. That's hardwired. That's how I've been having hypnotherapy. But you know that kind of we are hardwired to learn how to be part of it. So then rejection from the group or the risk of sensual rejection is tantamount to death in our in our brain psychology that's evolved over hundreds and hundreds of years. So of course we feel things. Of course we wake up and go, oh God, was I talking rubbish last night? And that can feel like the beer fear and the death of it all or or, or maybe I did offend them or, you know, or, oh God, everyone looks so cool. Why did I, why was I wearing black? Everyone just looked really cool at the, that yacht party. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like all these things. Cause, cause, and then they, they become sort of so sort of crystallized within us, like sedimentary rock of all these experiences. And then you do have to face things in life where, you're, you, you know, something my hypnotherapist says to me is like, why do you hate being the victim so much? Why are you so determined, even in this, to not just be seen as a victim? And I, I couldn't really answer it because I think people weaponize being a victim as well. This kind of like, you know, everything becomes social points. And I think that, I, but, but really there comes points where you haven't got the energy anymore. You want to say, you know, we, we might share a, a shitty day with each other, but how quickly... Oh, I do it with so many friends. Yes, my darlings, you've got... Ali! Oh, I've got kid disturbance. Can I meet one of these amazing kids? Oh, look, this is Bonnie, look. Hi, look Bonnie. Look, Harry. Bonnie, you've got my hair. Fellowship. You should be my girl. there's another one. Oh, <laughs> look at those. I love Jurassic World. He loves Jurassic World. He, yeah. Do you? What do you like about it? Is that your, where, Where'd you get that from? On a magazine. We love magazines on a Friday, don't we? Oh, that's a good day for yeah. a magazine. Right, off you go. Yeah, and I got a No pictures with the triceratops. It's right there. I'll show her in a minute. It's all right. Talk of being seen. You know, worthiness, being seen. <laughs> Fuck off. Um, yeah, listen, we can talk this shit on a podcast, but don't be a fly on the wall when we're raising our kids. Yeah, yeah, Is yeah. the ginger from the from their dad? Yeah, do you want to see him and all? Yeah, let's yeah. wheel the whole family no, he's in. Got, he's got he's, he's it. He's like, don't embroil me in this shit. <laughs> yeah. Is, um, but, uh, you, you yeah, sorry, get, carry on. So Lord, being yeah. seen, being yeah. seen, and, and, and then going, what, you still like me, you weirdo? I don't like me. <laughs> but having somebody, so you've, Philippa Perry described. Um, I love. I love Philippa Perry. I love everything I she do does. Too. Yeah, she's amazing. And I, she was um, somebody had written into the Guardian, obviously uh, about you know what, whether it mattered if they had a significant other or not. They were my kind of age. It could have been me writing in Laura. Yeah. Like, I've got this far. When I am with someone, they kind of annoy the shit out of me. Should, why am yeah. I still looking? And does it matter if I end up, you know, seeing the rest of my life through, broadly speaking, single? And she said, of course, it doesn't matter if that's that's lots of people plow that lane very happily. But she said yeah. the thing that you do get out of that significant other is someone who holds you to account and yeah. is a witness to your life. And that made me nearly cry because I was like, that is the bit I love when I'm with somebody and I, I feel like proper grief and loss when I'm when I lose that. Yeah. And so you have you've got a witness to your well you've got lots of witnesses I, to your love because you have yeah. your home is full but your yes. partner because you, you had a, you had a kid when you were 20 your first yes. kid yeah and then those two are quite a bit younger yes so I've got a big gap so they're about 12 13 years younger than my Rosie so yeah I met my husband Alistair Ali when she was about 10 
and and I'd, I'd had therapy before I met him because I was dating for 10 years and I had therapy before I met him because basically I did a sort of Carrie Bradshaw of I couldn't help but wonder, was it me fucking up all these relationships? Because I would go for horribly unavailable men because subconsciously I was not ready for a commitment because I was very hurt. And then when I had therapy, like, I, I it was basically, a not, it was, I always describe therapy as, you know, when you get a, a, a handbag again, but you know, when you finally get to tackle your handbag and get all the fucking shit out, clean it away and put three things back, like your oyster, your lipstick and the pen. And you go, oh, that's all I needed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, because these things become, you just accept that's part of your handbag. That's you're, I'm rummaging around in all this shit and shit and shit, and you can't let anyone in. And it was about really clearing the decks of of stuff. And 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 you know that is true. Ali and I, we really see each other, and we had this thing of you know I would do this sort of stuff when I was dating of kind of what seemingly confessional, but really I was throwing red flags at them. Do you know when I was going, no, because this is who I am. And I just had this shit story that weren't really true. It was true, but it wasn't true. It was more just like, oh, this is a, uh, this is who I am. So, bleh. but I was really going, fuck off, fuck off, fuck off. And so after this kind of sense of trying to tap into feeling good enough and be, you know, which is obviously a lifelong thing and there's layers that come away, but it, we, we, we were ready for each other and we really saw each other. And we always say, there's always been this thing of anything we've ever told each other. There was on some weird level, we already knew it. You know what I mean? Nothing ever felt confessional. Nothing ever felt surprising. We just see each other. And there is a lot of um, a, a accountability in the sense of, you know, my husband has been in the same band since he was 13. And he goes, the thing is, the reason I don't really want to write, and I said, you're just scared. I, 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 don't, want to, I don't talk about it. And that's more my approach. I don't want to hear about anyone. Unless you're going to do it. And he was really like, oh, you bitch. But it was true. Because he just really constructed a story. Did he do it? Yeah, he's done it. He's recording an album. He's, he's incredible, and he's really and he's in another band, and he's and he's and the way he's pushed forward. But on the flip side of that, he he's held me a cat because he's so nice. He'll put himself back at the back of the queue. So my little bit of has put him he, taught him how to be more front and know he's worth a little bit. But with me, he goes, he goes, I'm not saying you're wrong, Laura. I'm not saying you're wrong. He goes about things because I go to war with stuff. He goes, is that on I'm his t-shirt? Saying... I'm not saying goes, you're wrong. Yeah, no, he goes, I'm just saying tread lightly. Just tread lightly, Laura. And it's and it, that's over the years, that's really taught me something. I'm always ready to go to war or think I can solve something, can take the world on my shoulders. And then he just tells me tread lightly and uh, sort of stomp off. <laughs> or, he, or he listens to me and I'll rant and rave about something. He goes, no, nah, I hear you. He goes, I hear you. I forgive him. He goes, I go, what? <laughs> so he's not saying they've not done anything wrong. And I go, all right, but he, he so he we, we've but it's through accountability. We're not we don't just back each other a hundred percent. We go, that's you're better than that. You're better than that. And and then we see each other, and and it's a very safe place. And you know, I started. I think I needed to start comedy when I had a very safe foundation because I'm very. I would, I would, these little 18, 20 year olds that all do it, man. They're like superheroes because I didn't. I wouldn't have had the emotional I foundation totally to deal agree. with a bad night. I totally agree. You started at 37, I think, yeah? yeah. I start, so you started a bit under 10 years younger than I started, but we're, which makes yeah. us, you know, if you're a geriatric mother when you have a kid over 35, we're geriatric comedians in terms yeah. of when we started. And it's the same for me. It wasn't just 
part of its material like I feel like I've got a lot to draw on but yeah. I did not have a sense of who I was my feet weren't on the ground I did no. not feel that's why I didn't act I started acting and then I just thought I can't do this I can't cope with the rejection I'm not traditionally beautiful I don't have a traditionally good figure like I can't no honestly if you just you know I, I promised you in my 20s I was not I was overweight. I was not, I was, I, I sort of, I've kind of grown into myself. I feel, I wrote a piece for the Guardian and they, they put the headline, you know, I'm hotter than I ever was. And it's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is yeah. relative to my age group, I yeah. used to be someone. glow up. Yeah, this has been my glow up. It doesn't mean it's glowing. It just means for me, it's a glow up relative <laughs> to me. But, um, but that, that idea of, because um, even now drawing on half a century of, resilience resources years of therapy digging yeah. deep coping with cut and thrust of boardrooms raising kids on my own just about I'm resilient enough to cope with this really weird bloody masochistic life we've chosen yeah and I couldn't I couldn't have dreamt of doing it in my 20s Namaste, motherfuckers. one of the things that hasn't been tackled properly in uh in in life and in our industry i think we're really big on kind of like inclusion and let's bring in let's make sure it's diverse and that there's equity i still think we've got a way to go in terms of social mobility and assumptions about class i think that's that's yeah. one of the last things that still is and I, and I say this as someone who is absolutely middle class and from a background of privilege yeah. in many ways but I think it's really easy for people to make assumptions about people. I think as a yeah. female comedian, there's a lot of assumptions even before you open your mouth. Yeah. But then as somebody, you know, you, you, you're kind of East London kind of act, you talk about, you know, raising your kids, you had a kid young, but you're massively smart. You got a first class degree. You're, 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 so people would underestimate you at their peril. But I imagine yeah. not only do people sometimes underestimate you until you open your mouth, yeah. But also, it must have been quite weird when you were living that parallel life of getting a first in English, having a kid really... It's almost like you were straddling quite a few camps all at yes. once. Yeah, it really was like that. And, and, and in terms of class, you know, my dad my dad wasn't down the pit or, you know, in any labour lines. My dad was quite naughty, you know. He was in and out of prison my whole life. And and my mum, my mum, you know, my mum was very work, working class, but she went to UCL. She, she, you know, she came down to London at 18 and... They were all very much part of the sort of hippie party scene. They kind of just dropped out. Do you know what I mean? And 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 then my dad was very much in the sort of it's like that layer cake. You know, it it became very kind of messy and embroiled and in, in that life. And he was sort of you know you know southeast Londoner and 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 it was all kind of quite messy and and it was all very hard in terms of identity. Yeah, I'm an East Londoner. And my dad was, you know, and we, you know, we grew up like that. But there was extremes of wealth, you know. There was extremes of wealth until it was all lost on a card game or something, you know. And then there was real poverty. And I mean, real, real poverty of, like, you know, presents from, you know, Christmas presents from probation officers, you know, when we were struggling. So, I mean, so I, I think there's a working class sensibility. I, I mean, even Ricky Gervais talks about almost being embarrassed by earning money because um, of knowing that what he could earn in an hour might be his dad's monthly salary sometimes and, and that embarrassment and that sort of working class. So I'm not saying I don't subscribe to a working class ethic. And, you know, but it, it, in, in a lot of respects, I, I, I feel slightly classless as well. I feel slightly uh, like I, I feel very comfortable in a lot of places because... 
because of the extremes of my life but it, but in terms of an emotional kind of safety that's something I've had to learn and acquire but yeah and so then when I had a young um a child young and I was in temporary accommodation and it was all the girls from school that I went to school with that I probably you know was bullied by or, or you know like I had fights on the bus with you know it was all you know fag ash lils and baby fathers and you know girls that couldn't act you know like even when if I took my daughter to a mother and toddler group they go well what they ask you what they say what do you have to do now because they was trained they were girls that were like I'd only done school police officers social workers and doctors they're all in the same category teachers do you understand what I mean they were like and so they couldn't access all that stuff and I was so rock bottom when I had my Rosie of just that sense of I never thought I'd sort of be I couldn't believe I was a single mum and I, I didn't I just didn't have I didn't know what I was doing and I bumped into my English teacher um Rachel Moore who was brilliant and I was at like the leisure centre on Romford Road and she went, oh, what are you doing? And she, I said, oh, bums, tums and fires. And she went, no, no, like with life. Like she went. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, well, no, I'm, I, I, it's all that. Oh, well, I'm just a single mum. I had a baby. I, you know, I'm, uh, um, uh, and she went, well, why aren't you doing an English degree? And I, I got a B in my A-level literature because I was like fucking about it. And, and I always thought, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not good. It's always what I wanted to do. Do you know what I mean? And, and and I, I and her she sort of told me off. I'm very visible, <laughs> but she told me off. She's like, you should be doing an English degree. And then my housing officer at the time for the mother and baby unit I was in helped me look into how I could do my degree part time. And it was really nice. And it, and it, and I remember because because I because I was smart in school, and I think that's why because I was all like jokey and a bit of a joker. But then I'd get top grades in school, and I think a lot of the girls thought I was sort of pulling a fast one or something I got kind of and I kind of learned very quickly in school don't don't put your head above the parapet don't like any success will be met with derision or meanness so I remember I did this access course called new beginnings to get on um, my degree at University of East London and the, the t when I arrived for a session and I probably didn't have wi-fi at home or internet or, probably wi or internet at home and he said oh did you get my email I said oh no he said well a lot of people struggled with the assignment but yours was perfect so I took the liberty of printing it for everyone and handing it out and but like that scared me to death. I thought, oh, they're all going to hate me I just you know even though I was sort of 23 24 I thought oh, they're all going to hate me like for doing well and they were all like they rushed up to me afterwards because we were adults. We weren't teenagers. Do you know what I mean? And and it, that was a big lesson. Oh, you can do good things and people will still be nice to you. That was a big lesson for me. And and then it kind of, a, 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 you know, there's a flick, switch from flick or flick of a switch or whatever. I thought, oh. And so by the time I went to my degree, I, I thought, oh, I could. It was like a comp. I could, I could do really well. And I, it's like I... And maybe I started my degree when I was about 25. And I, I, I thought, it, all of us, it's like I was, I found my confidence in that to go, oh, I could do really well. I wasn't hiding from anything anymore. It wasn't, I didn't associate it with danger to do well. And I really was proud to push and push myself to get that first class honours degree. It meant a lot, do you know what I mean? And, and yeah, and the same with teaching, it was a lot. And, I remember when I went for my job, but even though they literally the job where I did my teacher training and the, where I taught for 10 years, when I went for my interview, like, they literally made the role for me. But something happened in the interview that the headmaster said, tell me about your school days. And I froze because I thought, I thought to myself, oh, well, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> you know, like 
talk about my degree, talk about this, because I, I realised actually I'd shut off, I think there was a lot of trauma, you know what I mean? Like, you know, with my dad dying and things like that. Did your dad die shortly before you went to secondary? Yeah, when yeah. I was 10. So that's so, what a time, well, there's no oh, great time to lose a dad, but what a time. No, it was, it was really messy. And so uh, I think that's what it hit me at 30 when I went for this job, like doing this, I thought, because I remember crying to someone afterwards saying, what, so what, does it count for nothing if people still want to ask about that? But of course, that was just an innocent question. He wants to find out who I am. But I realised what a huge ball of trauma there was then. I think that kind of prompted a little bit of soul searching. And so even though I was did, had done successfully, I felt successful as a mum and I felt successful with my friends and I felt successful in that. I think in terms of who I was in the sense of not feeling good enough and a lot of this sort of, probably trauma of my dad and, and my teenage years, I thought, oh, I've got to deal with this. And I sort of, I think I've always just had this sort of systematic approach of going, oh, oh I'll deal with that then, you know, like, so I'm like, oh, well, I'm not through that wall then. But I read a Rumi quote, actually, it was a Rumi quote of instead of searching for love, search and destroy all the barriers of love you have within you. So I think I've systematically always wanted to do that. And I think... Tell me that quote so think, again, say that because so I want to hear that. In, instead of searching for love, you should search and destroy all the barriers of love you have built within yourself. I love that. I know. So that was pretty awesome. And and actually, that is constantly what I'm doing because, you know, teaching took, you know, meeting my husband took another layer of, oh, God, exposing of those. But, oh, okay. You know, I could, I could, we're different people in this 10 years we've been together now, you know, and it's astounding. And then, you know, and then doing stand-up was another layer. And then facing cancer was another layer because you go, fuck, I'm going to, I know why I've got, like, you know I mean? Like, I, I I felt like I know why I've got this. I felt like, not as in a punishment or anything like that, but I thought, it's a mutation, isn't it, cancer? It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's about your immune system. It's about, I could, I could you know, in the same way when sometimes you can have a, a stomach, you know, a sickness from something you've eaten and you go, oh, I know it was that. And, you know, like, you know, like you, you can be ill when you go you, you straight away, your brain goes to exactly what did it the day before or what have you. I could think of the time, you know, of having kids and going back maternity and the stress of life. And I could think, but I can also think of how almost I, my whole life I've trained myself to contort myself to make others feel comfortable, to, you know, and, and, and internalized other people's stuff. And, and, and it just felt, well, you know, and I've read so many things around it. There's a brilliant book called Cancer is a Turning Point that, um, um, that, that, that about someone from post-war to the late 80s worked with cancer patients. And up until maybe the 1800s, cancer was seen as an emotional disease. It was just seen as that, that someone... And, 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 and that actually the sort of model of therapy that he'd always been trained in wasn't working where people go well it used to be like this and my dad was like that and my mum was like that and actually my brothers and sisters were like this and actually go well what turns you on what switches you on what keeps you alive what makes you sets you on fire and to really start tapping into that to start almost you know throwing the weights off the air balloon the hot air balloon to to sort of go well you know I don't want to keep other people happy you know I want to I want to be wholly loved I want to you know my body needs to know life and love and things that turn it on and switch it on and raise it up 
and I can't contort myself with any sense because if I, you know, it all felt very crucial then because if I fucking die, I'm going to die on my own terms and I'm going to die joyful and I'm going to get rid of all this other shit, basically. And so, that, you know, so more or less, and God willing, there's another decade I'll do more layers and I'll do more layers, but it's about, like you say, uh, you know, <laughs> so I'm saying, you know, a little call back to what you said. I'm saying to myself, okay, all right, Lenora, I'll look at, I'll see you and I'll love you. I had to do that hugely. <laughs> you talk. <laughs> oh, mate, I don't think I've had a podcast yet where I've cried so much and <laughs> that's been so lovely. Is it? It's a bit like the um, I will talk, although there's one of the things I learned when I first started because um, I trained to be a, a cognitive hypnotherapist and when I did all oh, my wow. NLP and all that stuff. Um, to keep me sane when I was in boardrooms I was like I'll just go and do like caftan wearing shit outside the office and I might yeah, just yeah. about stay a human um the yin and the yang of experience but I I remember them saying really early on it was really powerful that if someone's crying if even if you put a hand on them or an arm around them or give them a tissue yeah it's a bit like you're saying don't cry <laughs> and which is why in therapy they don't give you a tissue there's tissues you take a tissue if you want a tissue yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but the yeah. cry it's okay to sit with the crying and that was a thing I was and don't feel you've got to kind of fill it with anything and, and that was a really oh. powerful <laughs> thing to know I also remember when I um one of my best mates Joe, who is definitely the funniest person I know and if she wanted to be stand up she'd like wipe the floor with all of us yeah. But she and I both had therapy in the same psychiatric hospital, not at the same time, but we ended up meeting a few of the same therapists because it was like intensive. We'd totally fallen apart, pants on our head level of like not well mentally, but she yeah. did it a bit ahead of me. She's always been ahead of me and everything. <laughs> and she, we both, there was this one therapist who actually I still have as my therapist. And she, um, and she would, she gave us each a right talking to about why we would make jokes during the group therapy. <laughs> so we'd be like life and soul of group therapy. <laughs> It's not really the vibe like you know why, why do you feel the need but we would we would cheer, we'd be like well it cheers everyone up and she'd be like that's kind of not what we're here that's for. not your responsibility <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and maybe they don't want to be cheered up because they're in a fucking yeah, psychiatric hospital so. <laughs> there was an awareness of the but yeah if this is any other situation other than a podcast i could have just sat with my tears but yeah um it makes it long for the audio form because everyone would be like what's yeah. happened has she gone off for <laughs> shit what's she doing we're, there? we're sitting <laughs> with her pain yeah get on board <laughs> but, um my brother at the moment he he's um on, on a, another layer of spiritual awakening as, as we all keep doing but he's because i'll be honest with you like, i just keep crying at trees can you believe trees and this guru he's listening i can't remember who it is but he said he was asked what is your greatest achievement and he said tears and I thought, well, that's it. Like, I'm not ashamed. You know, that is it. Like, crying makes people really uncomfortable. So it's a teacher. Or people go, people go, it's, oh, I've never, I've never made it work in stand up, but it's like when people go, oh, don't, you'll set me off. And what they mean is, <laughs> don't. don't. <laughs> Tell your brother from me that I can top his crying at trees. I cried. I was on an escalator at the Birmingham NEC and they had pictures of, they, they'd done a sort of massive, like photographic montage of a beautiful forest, but it was in the horrible NEC in Birmingham where you're like your soul's dropped out of your arsehole before you've even got in. And as I was leaving, having done a keynote speech, I saw these trees and I just started crying because I thought, I don't want to be in the NEC. I want to be with my dog walking in trees. So I cried at a picture of a tree. <laughs> so I see his crying and I raise yeah. him crying at pictures of trees. But it, it is, it, it's so, I, I mean, I just love, um, I, do, I just love 
I love crying and I love emotions and I love people that you know you can do that sort of thing with um and 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 sometimes and you know what it, there's that th another quote but you know you can only meet people how deeply they've met themselves so I think maybe a lot of my life where I'm I'm a truth searcher and something I did with my hypnotherapist he said you assume that people want to evolve and they want to break out of these boxes and they want to they want this help they because you, you're about that and you can do it with members of your own family or friends or something but they don't want that so when they're, they're they're cold to that, that's not a coldness to you. That's their protection. That's got nothing to do with you. You can't do that. But if that's what you're about, then you, because, you, you, you know, I love all my family and everything, but, you know, it's about growing up and going, you know, Leonard Cohen, it begins with your family, but soon it comes around to your soul. It doesn't matter. You're not dismissing anyone. You're not um, betraying anyone by finding out your world and your scene and tapping into who you are, it's powerful and wonderful and it can ruffle feathers and that's all right. And it can hurt people. And that's all right too, because they've got, got their big girl pants on. I'm not in charge of their big girl pants. I'm, I'm you know, barely, barely keep holding my own knickers. Do you know what I mean? Most of the time, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's that sense of like, yeah, a sense of true sort of worthiness and okayness within yourself, not, you know, uh, you know, over explaining or wanting something from anyone else. You have to really tap into your sense of self and be okay with that. And, you know, Tom Ward, because literally I left work, didn't go back to work in September, oy, oy, um, found a lump, like, you know, and the parallels of things that have happened this year, so we're just over a year since my diagnosis and the parallels of how things have happened. Like I submitted my sitcom to the BBC on the same day I went to the GP about my boob. <laughs> I got feedback and notes the same day I went in for my mastectomy. <laughs> Do you know, like, like, like all these kind of, and all these different things that have happened. I did, I did um, live at the Apollo pretty much just to the day of, finding my lump or you know like, these wonderful awesome parents and darkest days in chemo I pictured stepping out to the live at the Apollo stage to the point that me and my agent laughed because I found out I didn't get it then a week later I found out I did get it because someone had called out whatever you she went you know when you didn't get it I thought that don't feel right and I said yeah I know exactly what you mean yeah like, there was something that felt no that's the end of this week yeah but back to Tom he he said and because he's on, on a certain level and I like people that can just say things that are uncomfortable and, and they take a risk. And he said, you know, you can talk about the unfairness of all of the coincidence of all this or has the timing. Or even when I went back to school for the end of year barbecue to see people or my ex teaching colleagues and the headmaster went, you couldn't write it, could you, Law? And I thought, well, he said more there than anyone that hugged me or, you know, he just went, you couldn't. And I thought, yeah. But then Tom had said, of course this is happening together. He said, of course, there's something very weirdly balanced about all of this, this big dream life and this, right, we're going to do some, we're going to do some tearing away here. We're going to do some big pruning here as well, physically, very physically and very spiritually. And he said, in a weird way, he goes, because of what's happened, because when, when that diagnosis came, of course, because before it came, I think I was going at comedy the same way I was going for every fucking everything in my life, getting a husband, getting a degree, getting teaching, I'm going to get it. And I was going for comedy with that same fucking crunky, the frontal lobe bullshit, and it like, Rah. 
And then I couldn't name, when I think I might die, I couldn't name you one thing on this world I wanted. There's nothing I want. What do I want? I want life. That's what I want. I want life. I was, I swear people thought I was going through divorce. All the, I want like inspirational quotes, sunsets, sunrises, dog walks, even time lapses, watch the sunrise. I just couldn't. I, I was, I, it was like, I was, it's like a cornucopia. I was like, here's my basket. Fill it, fill it, please. Come on, world life. And sure enough, it got filled. It got filled with eight out of 10 cats does countdown and live at the Apollo and, you know, making a sitcom and, another written commission and amazing writing jobs, you know, that kept my family up because, you know, my husband couldn't work as much when I was ill, but I was writing the whole time. We've been fine. We've done holidays. It's been the most awesome year of my life because I think I shed away any want. I just, it was gratitude. Oprah, Oprah says in my darkest, darkest days, and there was dark days. I'm not trying to make it like I, I did this. The darkest she says always, oh, she always does five things she's grateful mm. for. And some mornings I couldn't, but that works. It was like that was the rope when I was at the bottom of a well that just by like that on my darkest couple of months. And you can tell when I'd got out of the well because I stopped writing my five good day. <laughs> but, you know, it it was enough, you know. And, 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 and if you're just grateful, you're just grateful. So... It's that. It's I think that. the three, um, I, I do three, and again, you saying it's made me realise there's two things that really help me, as well as like eating properly and sleeping. But the other two things that really help me when I'm in the shit mentally are doing some kind of meditation, even if it's 10 minutes in the morning, just yeah. some time with myself and the gratitude journal, which yeah. people think sounds really wanky. But if you're, and when people, and I do three things, and well, actually, there's two ways to do it, which I really like is what am I thankful for? And what did I do today that I that I'm proud of myself for? And yeah. it could be literally I managed to, you know, get my pants on the right way out and clean my teeth if it's yeah. a bad day. Um, and yeah. then what you're grateful for could literally be this, you know, I saw the sun come up or, you know, yeah. my orchid had a new flower or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Or it could be something massive. But those things do they sound, they do sound wanky. But as you get older, I think it's hard to just take the piss out of them when you see how much they help. Did you? Yeah. um we it's funny when you talked about meeting Ali I had Johnny Walker on the podcast last week and his wife Tiggy um not long after they'd met he nearly died of um non-Hodgkin's lymphoma <gasps> then no sooner did he recover than she got breast cancer which she charted in this incredible book like photographs of her whole journey um I think oh, it's wow. called the Unplanned Journey it's a beautiful book but there are lots of oh. parallels in how he talked about Tiggy his wife and how you've talked about your relationship with cancer and your relationship with the person you're in a relationship with yeah. and he said it was like he'd always known her not like he was yeah. getting to know her but that he'd met somebody yeah. he'd always known oh yeah and his yeah. yeah there was a lot there was a lot of crying on my part in his I think he was fine I was, I was like oh Johnny that's amazing yeah. and he's like cracking yeah. on but if it, it is we're, we're releasing this at the end of breast cancer awareness month yeah. and yeah. loads of this episode is going to be so helpful for anyone who's got any connection with breast cancer yeah which is pretty much everyone I would imagine yeah um, but if you had to sum up, if you think about the awareness thing, if you had to sort of sum up what something that might be helpful for someone to be aware of in regard to the subject of breast cancer, what would it yeah. be? Well, a, a big thing is is the rise of it, the rise of it in women and, and you know, and men as well. And especially it seems to happen a lot around big life events or just having children and all that women are balancing. And, you know, it is 
It is. I, I sometimes think, oh, the timing of it. But I don't know whether I would have gone to the doctors about it if I was still teaching full time or even like to the point of making time for myself or even just stopping and checking in on myself. When we're so go, 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 we don't know what our baseline normal is. You know, we're talking about our gratitude list or a bit of meditation and eating well and sleeping well. Life, you know, we're talking about mental health debate of, oh, you know, but mental health is a, is a economic, an economic issue more than anything else. Of course you're stressed, you, you know, or, you know, the stakes are so high. We have to work two people's jobs because, you know, every organisation is understaffed. We're doing all these things. You have to prioritise yourself. And I, I will say this especially to women and, 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 and men, of course, in terms of breast cancer or any other cancer, you have to stop and prioritise yourself. And it always feels counterintuitive, especially working mothers. If you're not working, you better be mothering, you know, you better be doing something. I have trained myself for the first time in my life to take time for myself, restorative yoga, yoga, long dog walks, one of the children wants to come nope I don't want you to come I need this hour because if you ne I don't know whether I ever knew even what a baseline of peace and wellness was until this do you know what I mean so if you don't know your baseline you then don't know what's normal if you're always going and you're you know you've got IBS because you're so stressed or you don't know what a normal bowel movement looks like sorry to get into nitty-gritty or what your boobs actually feel like because you don't actually have time to have a proper shower you know, like to feel your body, know your body and, and then also advocate for yourself once you're in that system. You know, breast cancer has a great treatment rate for old women that are in the screening process and, and, and you know, um, cure rate and survival rate. But younger women, because A, they're not in a screening process, which, which is only because we're, our breast tissue is too dense. But B, because um, I don't know whether symptoms are dismissed and you know it's black history month as well so i'd like to talk about the fact that actually the vast majority of late diagnosis in breast cancer are with are with black women and that is a whole can of worms in terms of you know overlooked needs the right to advocate for yourself you know dismissal of unconscious bias within institutions including um, health institutions these are really f important things that women and especially black women as well of knowing to advocate for yourself don't don't trust the doctor too much you go no you know the first time i went to the gp it's probably fine but sort of told, probably fine but well sure enough as soon as the scan got involved it was anything but fine you know so it's about self-care not hashtag self-care i got my nails done and i'm having a few drinks with the girlies but real care taking time for yourself and, and and knowing what your baseline is, filling your own cups of goodness and 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 knowing yourself and knowing what's different and giving yourself rest because then you can go, this isn't normal. I know myself and this isn't normal. But when you're flat out and you're the last on the priority ladder, last last rung of that priority ladder of your boss, you da 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 da, -da you'll you'll never prioritize yourself. And I'll tell you what there's not many people at your work that might come to your funeral as well your job is not worth killing yourself over and I you know and I nearly killed myself a few times for my job you know and so that that is that that's <laughs> all those things no it's perfect um 
I'll have to work out how to edit that into a pithy soundbite. But no, that's, <laughs> see, that's me using humour when something was really poignant. <laughs> You're never okay. going to get any... Yeah, it's never going to be a short answer with me. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick as your namaste, motherfucking, life-changing moment? One of the big things was... There's loads, because we've talked about loads. But for me, especially in terms of breast cancer, when they thought it was all contained and then so what happened, they realised it was in the lymph nodes. So I had to have a brain scan and a full body scan and a bone scan to find out whether it was stage four, which they didn't think once they didn't have to check whether it's stage four, which of course meant that maybe that, that would be a very short life expectancy if that was the case. So the day before I was getting those results, I, I, I mean, I tell a terrible joke, which is I was crying in bed thinking I'm not going to see my kids grow up. And then one of them knocked on the door. And I shout, go away. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not far off. I'm lying in bed thinking I'm not going to see my kids growing up and this and and potentially of what this news I'm going to get tomorrow. And I thought to myself, well, I've got to A, be able to handle that news, whatever it is tomorrow. I've got to put my big girl back. But and I've got to be, my kids are downstairs now. <laughs> You're crying, they're downstairs now. And your husband's downstairs now. And there's life going on downstairs now. And you're crying in bed. And I thought, well, actually, I might have six months or six years or 60 years left. I might. But if I'm miserable, none of them are worth anything. And actually, tomorrow is not promised to anyone. Not Tomorrow is not promised. And as soon as I thought, I thought, I said, is it like the same with graduates? Often it's a decision to be okay today. I'm making a decision every day to enjoy today. And, and and that's it. it. And I had cranial osteopathy, and she sort of said to me, "Your body's every energy, your energy in your body is like in the future, speculative. It's all there, there, there." I was never in the now, so I, 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 I today, it's just today. I've baked cookies today; they're probably all over me. I've, I've talked with the magical Callie Beaton. What an honour today! I'm going to do tour support for Jack White all later. And you know, mate. mate, just drop that in. But what a blessed day! That's enough. Today's enough. Today's enough. And that's if I keep that in my heart for however long I've got left. Can't go wrong, can you, Kelly? I feel bad asking you the next question because it's quite frivolous after this. But what would you pick as your favourite joke? My favourite of of my own. Of anyone's, any your favourite joke in the world can be one of yours. Can be anyone else's. Oh God. Do you know? Oh, that is so hard to actually sum up. But there's so many jokes. But I'm a big Norm Macdonald fan, and I go down rabbit holes with him. And I won't do this joke justice. This is such a dark ending. But he says, when people take their own life, people go, "Oh, can you believe he did that? How could he have done that?" And he'll go, "What? You don't understand? <laughs> have you never lived life?" <laughs> Like, it's like, what? Like, have you never experienced it? And it's just such a funny way of handling something so dark where it's like, you know. And so that, it just makes me laugh every single time. Oh, <laughs> Norm like, MacDonald, the world is a less good place without Norm MacDonald. Oh, I, I, I just go down rabbit holes with him. But yeah, there's, yeah. Oh, what's when I think of sort of jokes I wish I wrote I can't think of any off the top of my head but yeah that that always makes me laugh because it's so real like don't act like that's their portion where we know how yeah. hard it all is yeah. you know how 
close people being to the edge, you know. Yeah, it's a so... human condition. It's a rich <laughs> mind for comedy. And yeah. if you could give one bit of life advice to anyone listening, what would it be? Um, the... Getting your shit together is the job. That is it. It's not something you might do one day. Healing is the job. That's your heal. It's all right. It's all. It all hurts, but healing is the job. Namaste, so that was one of my favourite ever interviews for this podcast. That was the mighty Laura Smith. So that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Do take a look at the show notes for this episode where we've got links to all the things we talked about, as well as information about breast cancer awareness. And Laura and I really hope this podcast has helped you as much as it helped us to record it. And of course, please remember to spread the word, not just about breast cancer awareness, although that is somewhat more important than this podcast, even more important, but please do rate, review and recommend our show. We love doing it. We love you listening to it. We just generally love you and we love life. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I will, I really, really, really will be talking to comedian Finn Taylor. I take all the arguments in good faith. I, I think there must be elements of truth on both sides. Namaste, motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Thank you.